At Morgan Stanley, old school hard work meets bold new thinking. At 88 years old, we still see the world with the wonder of new eyes, helping you discover untapped possibilities and relentlessly working with you to make them real. Old school grit, new world ideas. Morgan Stanley. To learn more, visit morganstanley.com slash why us. Investing involves risk. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC. To Tech Check, I'm Deirdre Boza. Jim Cramer is off tonight, so we are bringing you a special edition of Tech Check for a full hour, and it's just in time. We are at the halfway point of the year. Tech has roared back. What looked like a downturn or the end of a cycle in 2022, perhaps it was all just a blip. Economists expected a recession. Investors were pessimistic. Rates were rising. It was all shaping up to be a nightmare for tech, but the nightmare never happened. So this hour, we will discuss the dynamic in AI investing, the lack of tech IPOs, and the downstream impact on Bay Area real estate. But in the stock market, tech has regained, even expanded its leadership. The NASDAQ is having its best first half in 40 years, up 30%. Apple, $3 trillion market cap. AI darling NVIDIA has just about tripled. Meta is back. Netflix is back. Along with Tesla, Alphabet, and Amazon, the so-called Magnificent Seven, they are responsible for 85% of the S&P's rally this year. So what now? This week, the economic forecast, they got better. Rates may have peaked, and yet tech is basically flat since June 15th. So are we at the beginning of a new bull run for tech, or was that it? Is it time for the rest of the market to catch up? Here with us to dig into all of that is Dan Niles, founder and senior portfolio manager for the Satori Fund. Dan, good evening to you, and thank you so much for joining us. Let's start really basic. Where do we go from here? This was sort of the half that defied a lot of folks' expectations. Well, you really had a big surge following NVIDIA's results. Um, If you go back to when they reported on May 24th, since that period of time, you know, S&P is up about 70% and NVIDIA is up close to 40%. And that really took the S&P from 4,100 to 4,400 or so. And so I think, you know, that's driven obviously by valuations and multiple expansions. So we have earnings season coming up. That's going to be really important if there's any kind of disappointments, because right now everybody's so optimistic on AI. But over this last week, you saw three very big tech companies report, Micron, uh, cynics yeah. uh, come out and, um, you know, you didn't Accenture and all three of them, the four numbers went down, even though all of them talked about AI being a big driver for their right. business. But the problem is everything else is slowing down uh, faster than AI can ramp to offset it. So NVIDIA, I think, is in a bucket all of its own because they <laughs> are the enabler. And then yeah. you have everybody else. I also think, Dan, of the market sort of pre-NVIDIA results and post-NVIDIA results, because before they came out with that sort of blowout guidance, the AI hype cycle was something that was sort of in the future. But what NVIDIA did was say that actually it's here and they're going to be monetizing it this year. So I wonder how that changes expectations for some of the other tech giants that are going to report in the weeks ahead, like Microsoft and Google, that have been part of this hype cycle. But we haven't really seen that monetization yet. Well, and, and I think that's exactly the problem. You need AI uh, graphics chips, and everybody's buying them from NVIDIA. It's the only place you can get them, really. And so you've got this huge surge, but for some, some like Google, for example, because you saw a couple of downgrades on that stock 
very recently, they're talking about, well, this is going to cost them more return search results and people may not be clicking on as many ads. So there's pluses and minuses for a lot of these other companies and investors right now are just saying, wow, NVIDIA's revenue estimates for next quarter went up over 50%. I've never seen that in 30 years in large <laughs> yeah. cap tech of being in this business. And so, you know, valuations have really gone up a lot, especially in technology. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have board numbers going up to match, like you saw with Accenture, Cinex, and Micron, you could see sell-offs as you did with them. And to be fair, they weren't big sell-offs, but you know, people right. aren't really putting them in the leaders category. Now you've got the leaders that have to report soon. So it all begs the question, Dan, of where do we go from here? We've been talking about this on CNBC all day because we are at that halfway point. Um, markets have sort of, and tech in particular, has defied expectations. Have a listen to what Jeremy Siegel, uh, Wharton School of Business professor, he mentioned to us on air earlier, and then I'll ask you to respond to it. Tech investors, it's a, it's a win-win for them. They say, listen, it's a long asset. If we have a recession, you know, tech is mostly immune. And um, if we have a recession, the Fed will stop raising interest rates, maybe lower interest rates. That's really good for our long-lived assets that we have. So everyone are piling into tech because they say that uh, it's a win-win no matter what happens to the economy. Yeah, and Dan... In addition to that, tech has almost become a defensive play because you look at an Apple or a Google or a Microsoft balance sheet, there's just so much cash there. What do you think? It always makes me nervous when people say it's a win-win no matter what happens because that's not <laughs> how it works. I mean, you go back to the recession in, in 2008, 0102, and, you know, 0102 is the best one, right? Because you're at the early stages of the Internet. You know, what could possibly go wrong? You've got so much growth in front of you. And then NASDAQ right. goes down 78% from peak to trough. So this is not a win-win for everybody. And valuations is sort of the linchpin here, in my mind, where you've yeah. got some companies growing at a reasonable price. So Meta is just above a market multiple. Um, Oracle, also a similar situation. And then you've got other companies, and you brought up Apple, and it's fantastic. It, you know, they got to $3 trillion. Incredible. But you're paying thirty over 30 times for 1% to 2% revenue growth last mm -hmm. year and this year. At least with Microsoft, you're getting you know, much better growth um, uh, over that period of time, and you're still paying low 30 multiple, but you know, with Microsoft, you've got some pluses and minuses there as well because mm -hmm. they're spending a lot to try to gain share in search, but if you look at the latest share data, it's showing that they actually lost share against Google. So yeah. there's going to be a lot of very interesting things going on with how much money you're spending versus what benefits are you actually seeing. Yeah, you're referring to those documents that came out of um, the antitrust case, which we're going to be diving into a little later. But, Dan, if you are looking at valuations and things are looking a little frothy, I find it interesting. You still like NVIDIA. Again, does this just go back to NVIDIA being sort of the exception that it has even more room to run? And why not some of the others than an Apple, for example, that's coming out with the Vision Pro that could create a whole new category next year? So with Vision Pro, you got to remember, Deirdre, it, that's maybe 150,000 units. And at 3,500, you're talking a half a billion in revenues. Apple does, um, you know, 225 million iPhones. This is barely a half of 1% of revenues to them. Yeah. It doesn't matter. So if you look at Apple, you can pay 30-something times for 1% to 2% revenue growth. You look at NVIDIA, you're paying 60 times, so roughly double, but you're getting 50% revenue. 
there's a very big difference in terms of revenues for the multiple you're paying. And that's the way I look at it with all of these names. That's why, you know, we like Oracle, mm -hmm. we like Meta, we like NVIDIA as plays on AI, but yeah. with everything else, we're, we have a much more skeptical view because the valuations have run up a lot more than the overall benefit to these companies. Mm -hmm. So, so the things that are trying to balance out growth and multiple. Right. So one final question for you, Dan. I know that you're a trader and you follow the earnings reports really carefully and, you know, trim or, or increase your positions. But if you're sort of an average investor, are you holding on to tech for the rest of the year? And I guess is the Nasdaq going to end up higher at the end of the year from now than it is now? You know, I thought the rally would peak out at 4200 on the S&P. It's obviously gone well beyond that, driven by NVIDIA. And, you know, we we've seen this before, right, um, during the meme stock phrase where valuations can go to levels you never imagined possible. So anything is anything can happen. But I look at it very simply. The S&P 500 at 20 times yields a little less than 5%. You can own a three-month treasury bill at mm -hmm. 5. You've got an, you have a very viable alternative where at the beginning of last year, three-month T-bills yielded about 0.03%. Yeah. You're getting 5.3%. So you know, it depends on how greedy you want to be. It's fear and greed all the time. Going into earnings seasons with expectations this high, I would just be careful because yeah. what you've seen so far, Accenture's, Cenex, Micron, all very large, important companies, numbers went down after they reported and so did the stocks. Yeah, you balance that FOMO with that fear and greed. Uh, Dan Niles, well put. Thank you very much for joining us. Talk to you again soon. My pleasure. Speaking of Apple, as we just were, a late-breaking story related to the company. Goldman Sachs is looking to end its credit card partnership with the tech giant, and it's in talks with American Express to take over its Apple card business. Joining us is the reporter who broke that story from the Wall Street Journal, Anna Maria Androidis. Anna Maria, thanks for joining us. Um, you just broke this story. What was it, less than an hour ago? Tell us what you know so far. This has been a somewhat turbulent relationship. Goldman Sachs may not have got out of it, everything that it was hoping to. Uh, great to be speaking with you. So what's going on is that there have been several months of um, discussions playing out between Goldman Sachs and American Express uh, pertaining to whether American Express would be interested in taking over the relationship that Goldman has with Apple. Uh, this is a very difficult partnership to move. Uh, we should start out by just talking about that. Uh, in general, when you start out with a co-branded credit card program, that can be challenging to move. But add to this the fact that in the relationship between Goldman and Apple, there's also uh, Goldman providing back-end support services for Apple's recently launched Buy Now, Pay Later program, as well as the recently launched um, Apple savings account that Goldman is housing the deposits for. Mm -hmm. So what's been playing out is discussions to essentially see if American Express would be interested in taking over this relationship. Um, and this is all happening at a time when Goldman mm -hmm. is looking to pull further back on consumer lending. Exactly. It feels like from this partnership, Apple has received the benefits, all of the users signing up for the product, but Goldman has had to pay in terms, this isn't exactly a huge money-making business, it's loss-making. Is that right, Anna Maria? So is this further admission that Goldman is making missteps in this area, consumer banking? 
Well, Goldman has definitely been faced with a number of challenges as it's um, uh, tried its hand at consumer lending specifically. Um, so when it did its last reorg last fall and moved several of the lending, consumer lending pieces like Green Sky and its credit card partnership into that newly formed platform solutions unit, it did disclose earlier this year and has been since with earnings that um, it's incurred substantial uh, losses yeah. um, from this unit. So um, uh the relationship between Apple and Goldman in, in, in many ways is complex. Look, there are, are a lot of banks that have issues with Apple getting bigger and bigger in financial services. But part of that is also envy in the fact that um, yeah. Apple had chosen to partner with Goldman. Um, and I remember when Goldman, uh, when, the, when the credit card partnership was announced and it rolled out in 2019, it was a real game changer in the credit card industry at that point, because that was the first time that the the incumbent banks, the retail banks, were faced with a massive mm -hmm. bank, in this case, a Wall Street bank, getting in on their turf. Right. Uh, and Goldman had been quite active in uh, competing against those other banks like JP Morgan Chase, Citi, et cetera, um, for credit card uh, co-branded programs. But they're basically at a point right now where they're reevaluating everything. They've talked publicly right. about this quite a bit on the consumer lending front. It's, and we think it's, it's notable such a fascinating that they've discussion. It's such a fascinating dynamic playing out, particularly between big tank, big tech, excuse me, and traditional banking. Um, one piece of it. We'll continue to follow it. Thanks for joining us, Anna Maria. Thank you. And as we head to break, take a look at the top NASDAQ 100 performers for the first half of 2023. The usual suspects here, NVIDIA, Meta Platforms, Tesla, those are all up more than 110% so far. NVIDIA up almost 200%. That's nearly tripling. We are just getting started on the CNBC special. Tonight, LinkedIn founder and VC investor Reid Hoffman on the flood of money flowing into AI. Plus, break it up, you two. The latest on Microsoft and Activision in court. And the San Francisco surprise. A real estate flight that gives new meaning to the term open office. That and more when we return. Resourceful small business owners know how to get value from the purchases they already make for their businesses each month. The Enhanced American Express Business Gold Card is designed to take your business further. It's packed with benefits and features, like four times membership rewards points that automatically adapt to your top two eligible spending categories every month on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. So you earn more where your business spends the most. Plus up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible business purchases at select shipping, food delivery, and retail subscription merchants. And with flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business and access to 24-7 support from a business card specialist, you can continue to run your business with confidence. The Amex Business Gold Card, now smarter and more flexible. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Enrollment required. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Brought to you by Eden Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Eden Vance High Yield ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find smart bond selection from a specialized team with deep fixed income expertise. Get to know what's inside EVHY, the symbol of high yield done right, at EdenVance.com slash CNBC. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment's objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. 
The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. Welcome back to our Tech Check special. Money has flooded into AI this week. Once again, multiple startups became unicorns overnight, vaulting to billion-dollar-plus valuations while still having just dozens of employees and, in many cases, still unproven business models. There was typeface AI this week. It uses AI to make content for businesses' ads and social media posts. Yesterday, announced $100 million in new funding on a billion-dollar valuation. Now, it launched just four months ago. Its CEO told me it wasn't even looking for that money. We were not really actively seeking money. As you said, we had plenty of capital. We were kind of doing very well in terms of market. Uh, There was significant inbound interest. The round was oversubscribed. There was also inflection AI this week. It is seen as a rival to ChatGPT, the one-year-old startup announcing a $1.3 billion in new funding for a $4 billion valuation. That is a monster round. And it comes just two months after the launch of its main product, a chatbot called Pi. Its CEO says that eye-popping valuation it might just be justified given how much he says AI will change the world. This is going to be the greatest leap forward in productivity that our species has ever known, probably more so than the Industrial Revolution. Now, the sheer magnitude of deal flow in the space is huge as well. This week, cloud data giant Databricks announced it will pay a stunning $1.3 billion to acquire AI startup Mosaic ML. Now, one way to measure that purchase price $21 million per employee, which just underlines how early we are in these businesses when this money's coming in the door. But let's take a step back and look at the history. The current class of tech giants took years, not weeks or months, to achieve unicorn status. Yahoo made a billion-dollar bid for Facebook two years after Zuckerberg founded the company. Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak created Apple in 1976. It went public four years later in 1980 at a $1.7 billion valuation. There's Amazon. It was founded in 1994. It only hit a billion dollars shortly after it went public three years later. So they were fast, but they were not this fast. Our next guest knows a thing or two about this as a longtime and legendary venture capitalist. He is behind some of the hottest AI names of the moment, including OpenAI and Inflection AI, which we just mentioned. Reid Hoffman, also the co-founder of LinkedIn. Thank you for joining us and being with us on this holiday Friday. <laughs> you just heard what I was saying. There's so much money in the space. And for those that say it's getting frothy, you are someone who is still putting a lot of money. How do you respond to them? Well, AI is the new technology. It's the steam engine of the mind, right? Um, You know, Mustafa was referring to the Industrial Revolution. It's a similar kind of thing. But, you know, within two to five years, there'll be a personal intelligence, a co-pilot for everything. This will transform products and services. This will transform industries. I think it's really important as that kind of moment. So while people are like, well, there's a lot of capital and it's and and it seems like it's moving really quickly, that's part of the kind of venture in business when you're betting on the new platform that's going to be the amplification of what we have with computers and phones and the internet and and all of the, you know, and every mm-hmm. single electronic device. 
Yeah, and in the venture capital world, you make a bunch of bets for maybe one or two to turn out to be that next, you know, multi-billion-dollar company. But Reid, I know that you've sort of made it your personal mission to talk about the benefits of artificial intelligence. But you know, recent polls show that a majority of Americans are still scared of the technology, or at least concerned about it. Um, what do you think changes their mind? I know that you've been doing some work on the ground, but is there sort of a seminal moment or a killer app that is able to sort of show what the opportunities are and take away some of that fear. Yeah, in, in, in this context, perhaps we should change language from killer app. Um, yes, but it's I, like, it's, <laughs> a yeah. good app. Yeah, it's a good app. Um, you know, obviously, you know, part of the recommendation is people using uh, these products, like go use Pi, use ChatGPT, you know, uh, get some exposure to them. But like, for example, if you imagine you have a medical assistant on every smartphone, you have a tutor for everything from a three-year-old to a 75-year-old on every cell phone, you see those benefits. It's like people say, well, I'm not sure about the internet. Oh, gosh, this search thing is really useful to me, and I can watch new shows and all the rest. Oh, this is really interesting and good for me. And that I think it's the experience, because when it's unknown, mm -hmm. there's kind of right. fear in it. And that's why I play with it. Right. And many millions are starting to play with it in the form of ChatGPT and BARD. Um, I was at the Aspen Ideas Festival earlier this week, and a lot of folks were talking about this and the effect that generative AI might have on the 2024 presidential election. This may be sort of its biggest test so far. How do you expect it to perform, and how do you expect generative AI as a whole to sort of, and chatbots to come out of this? Well, so I think there's obviously a huge possibility for misinformation. Um, we're going to have hostile actors uh, like the Russian Internet Research Agency, which, you know, over the last two election cycles was also trying to, you know, spread uh, misinformation and dissension. Um, they'll obviously be using tools like this. That'll be a challenge. I think it's beholden upon us as technology platforms and companies and so forth to try to level set that the right way, to try to make these sources of, of good information. Um, I think that's a game on point of view, but the good news is I think the White House and other folks are paying a lot of attention. It's one of the things they're asking of us, us a bunch of questions and they're trying to make sure that we're on top of for the election. Everyone sort of says they're paying attention to the threat of misinformation and generative AI in this election cycle. Do you see work being done? What's being done to actually prevent this? Well, I think that the, there's a bunch of discussions. So, for example, should you try to create, it's like all, all things generated by an AI have to be watermarked. Do you have identity right. certification within the social media platforms, other kinds of things? So there's a bunch of proposals being floated right now. Obviously, we're going to need to move on those, you know, kind of in a time frame of months uh, in order to make them happen. But the good thing with all of this happening through the large tech companies is it's all much more controllable relative to, you know, kind of monitorable and everything else. So you have that as a feature in this otherwise very, very fast moving technology. So who's most likely to step up in the coming year? Is it the tech companies themselves? Is it the, is it the public sector, a combination of both? Well, I hope a combination of both. I do know through a bunch of different, you know, uh, like, you know, Microsoft's been working on responsible AI for decades. OpenAI is really committed. Every project, it's, it's one of the things that, of course, the projects I'm attracted to are the ones that are like, how do we help humanity and society? And and the discussion goes well beyond that. You know, Google has been in a bunch of the discussions and is deeply concerned. So there's a, there's a swath, I think, of focus and interest on this. And I think that right. that's, um, you know, uh, let's put it this way, I'm hopeful but we have to work in order to get there. Mm -hmm.
Now, another theme that comes up in my conversations here in, in the Bay Area about generative AI is this idea of who's going to dominate ultimately? Is it going to be the big incumbents, the existing big tech players, or is it going to be the startups? You are on both sides of this. Um, what do you think is going to happen? You have a company like Typeface AI, another deal I covered this week, and they got investment from both Microsoft and Google's venture arms. What is the fate of this space and who is going to dominate? So I think there's going to be so much productivity and so much value created that we're going to see a both a lot of value for the large companies and a lot of value for startups. Um, initially, five years ago, I wasn't sh so sure. I was thinking, well, maybe it's only scale compute. It's it's the the providers, you know, like Microsoft's Azure and 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 Google and others as ways of of doing this. But actually, in fact, part of like you know when Mustafa was walking me through his initial thoughts and and joined him in co-founding Inflection, it was like, no, no, there's a great set of opportunities here in startups. And you know, over the last two to four years. Um, Greylock has been tripling down on its AI investments, and we have a whole portfolio of them now. So we're betting it's startups as well. Many of these startups, um, a big cost for them is just the sheer amount of compute power needed to run these language models. Um, and that's what sort of happened with OpenAI, right? So is it impossible, sort of, or what do you think happens to a startup when they reach a certain size and scale? Do they have to go and partner with a big tech company in order to continue to grow the business? If their AI business is one of the ones that requires a large-scale compute, uh, almost for sure they'll have to be using one of the cloud providers. Now, you know, um, while Microsoft has taken kind of an early lead in building this out, you know, Google's obviously very strong. Amazon's working on it. Uh, Oracle is working on it. There's a whole stack, and so I think that enables an ecosystem. And once you have, you know, one of the things about the discussion of large tech companies, is I think we're, you know, seven large tech companies heading to ten, not to three, mm. um, and so that gives you the competitive space for startups to play. And that's one of the things that I think, even if they go, okay, I have to go rent large computer from company X, they have a number of options, and that means that it's out there, mm. priced well, you know, all the benefits you get of competition. If it's 10 large tech companies, you know, a few years from now, is it the existing seven, what we're calling the magnificent seven, plus three new ones? Or does the whole scope of them, the whole makeup change? Uh, well, I think um, most of the magnificent seven uh, will continue and have positions of strength. Um, so I think it's it's plus three. There might be a trade or two. Um, you know, obviously, you know, NVIDIA is, is hugely uh, valuable behind this whole um, uh, kind of the the AI revolution uh, and the kind of the transformation of industries. Their their chips are are super important as part of this. Um, but the I think that the uh, that it's more likely you're going to see plus more even even more than three. You might even see another plus seven. Some mm. of those may even be these very early stage AI startups. Well, that would be a big opportunity for uh, some investors. And Reid, you're in many of these new disruptive companies. Thank you so much for making the time to chat with us, Reid Hoffman. My pleasure. And coming up, Microsoft and Activision Blizzard wrapping up a week of arguments around their proposed merger. We will get the latest. That's next. Don't go away. Looking for a rewarding, life-changing opportunity that enhances the lives of children in your community? With almost 50 years of experience, Huntington Learning Center is the nation's leading K-12 tutoring and test prep franchise, dedicated to shaping brighter futures for our students and franchisees. Huntington is the top revenue-producing supplemental education franchise in the U.S., and our proven system is the key to success for you and your students. The Huntington Advantage includes low startup cost, turnkey systems, dedicated support teams, national and local marketing support, 
and multiple revenue streams to help you build a life-enriching and profitable business. No education experience needed. In today's environment, the need for tutoring has never been greater. When you become part of Huntington Learning Center, you're filling an urgent need in the growing $5 billion supplemental education industry. To learn more, visit HuntingtonFranchise.com. Make a meaningful difference. Pursue your dreams of business ownership and be a positive force in your community. Don't wait. Visit HuntingtonFranchise.com today. Welcome back to the special hour of Tech Check. We are taking a deep dive into all things tech as the sector has been far and away the best performer of 2023. The Nasdaq rounding out its best first half performance since 1983 and the Nasdaq 100 seeing its best first half of all time. Now, the top three performers this year, you've heard them over and over again. NVIDIA, Meta, Tesla, they're all up more than 110 percent in just six months. Meanwhile, Microsoft, the heaviest weighted stock in the Nasdaq 100, ending the first half up 42%. Not bad. That stock has been steadily moving up this week. Also, amid five days of hearings over the FTC's request for a preliminary injunction against Microsoft's bid for Activision Blizzard. Our Steve Kovac has been following the story. Um, That is taking place just down the street from us here at One Market, Steve. I know you've been covering it and following all the documents. I was going through that big one today, nearly 100 pages. I mean, that's reason alone for Microsoft not to do this. So much juicy information that wasn't previously public that is being put out there. This must be really important for Microsoft to push through, gaming that is. Yeah, and one of those great nuggets that we got before we talk about the deal was that Satya Nadella thinks this can be a $500 million a year revenue company by their fiscal 2030. So that's an ambitious goal that, Mm -hmm. that, you know, almost has nothing to do with this deal a little bit. But look, Yesterday was the closing arguments, Deirdre, and we heard the judge really question the FTC side about the evidence they brought in, kind of alleging that um, people, if they, if Microsoft's allowed to do this transaction, they're going to be incentivized, regardless of anything they've said before, to take Call of Duty away from um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, PlayStation platforms and move it over to Xbox, and therefore people will abandon PlayStation and move over to Xbox. It did not sound like the judge was buying that argument, though, Deirdre. They right. brought in this uh, Harvard economist who said he had all this data and really couldn't back it up. And so that was a lot of the closing arguments uh, last night hinged on on that data, whether or not uh, it was believable, basically. And so um, the judge sounded very skeptical. She's expected to make her decision very soon. She intimated as much last night after the closing arguments wrapped. So we could get a decision, Deirdre, as early as next week, but it's not. Not over after that. There's still the UK regulators to go through. Exactly. I was going to say, it's not just here. It's the UK regulators. So how does that work? And then how do you think Microsoft comes out of this? Let's say if the UK regulators were taking a look at the information that came out of the last week, how does that hurt or help Microsoft's position in trying to get this deal through? Yeah, well, the UK side has the same information the FTC and, and all these other regulators did. They just came to a different conclusion. So what's happening in the UK is, let's just assume everything goes Microsoft's way here in the United States. They still have a timeline issue here because they have till July 18th to close this deal or they have to renegotiate it with Activision to extend it a little bit longer because the whole process isn't going to really get started, the appeals process rather, in the UK until the end of July. That's a couple days or a couple weeks rather 
after that deadline. So some possible things they can do, they can close a transaction and find a way to kind of carve out the UK and then figure out a way to make that work after they, if they win the appeals process, or uh, they have to uh, negotiate new terms with Activision, likely a couple more bucks a share right. based on the valuation now and, and op- make the offer even higher than the 69 billion they're already offering. Well, Microsoft seems determined, so we'll see how this all plays out over the next few weeks. Steve Kovac, thank you very much for bringing us the play-by-play. And coming up, 3,047. That is the current number of registered AI startups in the San Francisco area. We'll get the latest on the space and how its rapid growth is impacting the Bay Area. That's up next. Coming up, Mean Streets. Where are all the tech IPOs? Plus, Space Jam, a new way to think about office space in Silicon Valley. And another Apple milestone. We tie a bow on the week in tech, next on CNBC. Welcome back. Some signs San Francisco may not be the apocalypse that everyone says it is. Recent headlines reporting that Silicon Valley is spiraling into a doom loop, citing the homelessness crisis and crime rates. AT&T, Westfield Mall, Nordstrom, Whole Foods, T-Mobile, Amazon Go, among the companies that have either closed flagship stores or plan to leave downtown San Francisco altogether. Meanwhile, commercial vacancy rates are hitting a record high, according to a report by CBRE, with over one-third of offices sitting empty. Salesforce, even ditching its namesake tower, a building that was worth $300 million in 2019, it's now going for a fraction of that valuation. On the company's fourth quarter earnings call, Dropbox CFO Tim Reagan, he noted the subleasing environment has become even more difficult than expected. The market has deteriorated with many companies reducing their real estate footprint. And so we originally anticipated we would sublease San Francisco in mid-2023. Now we expect we won't begin subleasing until mid-25. But have reports of the Bay Area's downturn been greatly exaggerated? Don Peebles, CEO and chairman of the Peebles Corporation, is finding real estate opportunities in major cities like New York and Los Angeles, but he is particularly hopeful about the Bay Area. San Francisco is the worst off of all the cities um, that I mentioned, all those top five cities, and it'll be the first to come back. One phase of that comeback, the AI boom, breathing new life into the city. Typeface AI CEO Abhe Parnassus believes a major shift is right on the horizon. This is the center of gravity. Everyone wants to be here. I mean, the talent we are hiring around the world, they all want to be here. Uh, And there is no question that this will be the place where this new shift happens. So for me, that is the reason for optimism, that this is the birthplace for possibly the next biggest shift. The next chapter for the Valley could be less silicon, more cerebral. Hayes Valley, that's a neighborhood in the heart of San Francisco that is home to a growing number of AI startups and research labs where coffee shops are full and entrepreneurs are buzzing. That has led to the nickname Cerebral Valley. Kate Rogers is taking a closer look. When the pandemic narrative that everyone was leaving San Francisco was in full effect, Braden Ream came to town. Reem is CEO of VoiceFlow, which builds conversational AI assistance for companies. The startup, which launched in Toronto, has raised $24 million and has 55 employees. 
2021, when rents were falling, uh, people were saying they're leaving the city. It actually, for, for whatever reason, for me, it felt like the perfect time to come uh, actually, you know, officially move there. We were able to find cheap rent. Uh, there were some cool houses that were popping up. Reem lives in a collaborative house, formerly known as Genesis House, where founders can immerse themselves in projects, network and have support of like-minded peers and work round the clock. It harkens back to an earlier era of Zuckerberg's all-night hackathons, Steve Jobs at Park, and Hewlett and Packard in their garage. While some big tech companies may have fled San Francisco's downtown in recent years in favor of remote work, some founders like Reem are moving here to Hayes Valley to live in hacker houses to collaborate on and launch new ventures. Locals say the density of talent allows the city to be ahead of the curve on new developments in AI. Major players like OpenAI being based in San Francisco help to bolster the city's credentials in this sector. Data from Cruise Consulting shows San Francisco startups are paying less as a percentage of rent than those in New York due to the depressed real estate market, embracing of hybrid work, and using cheaper options like co-working spaces or collaborative headquarters. Max Reynolds is working in aerospace full-time, but pursuing a side project in AI after hours. He rooms with Ream in Hayes Valley and moved to San Francisco in 2021. Weekend hackathons, networking events, and constant collaboration at group houses make the city feel like it's buzzing once again. I like the idea of everyone working together, but not even on the same goal. Everyone's very helpful. Everyone's always willing to have conversations. Everyone is so unique, and I called it a sitcom. Founders like Reem are quick to point out that work in AI is happening all over the city, not just in Hayes Valley. He does say, though, that there is a strong existing network of founders there. But the hype around it, Deirdre, has also um, almost become a self-fulfilling prophecy, meaning everyone's already there. Everyone's talking about it. So maybe even more talented people will come there to work. You know, I've heard like the opposite problem in an area like Hayes Valley. There's not even enough supply, right? There's office space all over the city. But in a place that's hot for AI startups, it can be hard yeah. to come across. We were talking earlier and I was saying it kind of reminded me of, you know, the crypto boom when you had crypto houses and stuff. Mm -hmm. The difference here, though, I suppose, is that AI companies are starting to monetize. There's going to be a lot that go bust, of course. But what is it exactly that you hear from these people that's bringing them back to San Francisco in particular, not Miami, not Austin, the yeah. other so-called tech hubs? It seems of. like there's a new and renewed excitement about being in the city. As we mentioned in the package, these weekend hackathons, these events, there was uh, a Woodstock of AI event in April at the Exploratorium that had over 5,000 people. I spoke to Amber Yang. She was one of uh, the early investors that talked about this cerebral valley. And she was saying that most of those 5,000 people were in and around and from San Francisco. So there's a lot of talent already here. There's a lot of people coming back here. Right. And it feels like you have to be here to get in on this is what everyone's saying. And in the office, this kind of strange phenomenon, right, of, of everyone working from home or hybrid. But it feels like for AI, people want to be on the ground together. Yeah, exactly. So they can continue to yeah. network, exchange ideas, and really be a part of this. And it feels like for these people that AI here is ahead of the curve, right? Things right. are happening quicker, whether it's a week or a month ahead of yep. where it's happening elsewhere. You get access to a lot of the VCs, too. Uh, okay. Kate Rogers, thank you so much thank for being you. with us. After the break, more on the Bay Area impact of AI with an expert in the commercial real estate space. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Before the break, we were talking about San Francisco's potential real estate resurrection. Here with us on set to discuss this more, Sarah Mansuko from real estate services firm JLL. Sarah, thanks so much for being with us. Um, this is such a polarizing issue. 
We showed before the break some glimmers of hope, Cerebral Valley, but you still do. It feels like every day we get another retailer or operator leaving the downtown core. How do you gauge the situation? I wouldn't count San Francisco out just yet. San Francisco is the birthplace of innovation. Big tech has grown up here, and we're starting to see, as, as you've shown in the previous segments, AI as a really burgeoning industry here. So we're really excited about the opportunity. We've got over 10 AI companies in the market in San Francisco right now looking for over 800,000 square feet of office space. We think that's going to be a driving force in, in demand in the future. Right. But as we were talking about earlier, you know, AI alone can't save the city. There's so many issues in terms of the homelessness problem, crime rates. Um, are you hopeful? And I, and I speak to a lot of companies, too, traditional tech companies that have moved out of the Bay Area. What needs to happen on sort of the municipal, on the policy side, to get companies back in? Yeah, crime is a problem in every city, right? And what we're encouraged by is the actions that are happening right now from the mayor's office and, and the, the state of California. What we're really looking at is, is demand and people wanting to be here. This is the, the center of innovation, like I said before, and, and we're really seeing folks starting to come back to the office. Companies are ramping, ramping up their in-office requirements. I was talking to a property developer, uh, Don Peebles, last week in New York, who um, you know, has some investments here. He's building, and he says that it's at a point where San Francisco is almost intolerable for anyone. So for the most liberal, the most progressive people and voters have lost tolerance. Would you agree with that statement? And then he says, though, that's the reason it's going to come back. People are going to demand more, and you do hear that more and more on the ground. Yeah, I think San Francisco is a resilient market, right? We've experienced some blips in the road in the past, and we'll continue to, to climb out of this. We are seeing a lot of positive signs to recovery, and, and that's in the form of office demand. Now, some folks are worried about the rate of defaults and loans coming due. Um, there's a lot in the years ahead. And could that have implications for the broader banking system? How vulnerable do you see that being? Right now, we're preparing our clients for interest rate stabilization, which we think is going to provide a clear path to recovery. But really, one of the things that we're focusing on here in this market is the demand that's happening right now and the number of companies and tenants who are in the market. Aside from AI, we have four and a half million square feet of office users looking in the market right now, and that's what we think is going to help us turn the corner. Is that a recent development? Has that changed? Yeah. In the last couple of weeks, we've really seen an increase in demand, and we um, believe that that will happen. The, the first two quarters of the year are typically slow quarters for us, and so right. we see the second half is picking up. Well, thank you so much for being with us. It was a good overview, Sarah Mancuso. Thanks for having me. Of course. Up next, tech has been on a tear in the first half, you might have heard. So where are the tech IPOs? We will discuss that next. Stay with us. One of the big questions in markets right now is the state of the IPO market and whether it's back. Some early signs of a thawing over the past few weeks from Kava and Savers Value Village. But tech, the poster child of growth and innovation, is still nowhere to be found, including long-anticipated names like Stripe or Arm. I think that there's a big difference in the business model, right, between ARM, which is, is in the AI space, in the chip space, and, and Kava, which is, you know, great, great feta dip, but not exactly high tech. 
As Ari Levy writes for CNBC.com, there hasn't been a venture-backed tech IPO since December of 2021. So that means that ordinary investors, they haven't had the opportunity to own some of the most new disruptive businesses, a potential saving grace if you think that valuations became too inflated during the last IPO boom and retail investors were left holding the bag. Or it's a missed opportunity if you're looking to own a a piece of the next open AI. There is, meanwhile, a bloated pipeline of unicorns waiting to go public and a rebound in tech stocks that has pushed the Nasdaq up some 30% this year. Let's dig deeper into the subject. CNBC's Deputy Technology Editor Ari Levy joins us now for more. Ari, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Deirdre. Where are they? Where are they? Uh, It's a good question. Um, They are waiting for a market to develop. They're waiting to see economic data that shows that their buyers, the buyers of their technology, uh, are going to be there, that they feel comfortable making long-term orders. Um, So they want to know that if they go public, a quarter from now, they're not going to come out and have some sort of disappointing forecast that's going to cause investors to think think twice. They've raised big amounts of money. Most of them raised big amounts of money in 2021. Well, that helps them wait longer. Sure. So they were able to extend their runway. Subsequently, they've cut costs. They've they've reduced staff. Um, So they have a lot of money in the bank. And so the question is, why go public if the valuations aren't going to be comfortable for us? They're not going to get us excited. And we've got enough money to keep going. Let's wait for the market to develop and see what happens maybe later in the year, maybe in early 2024. Right. It's supposed to be a bit of glory about being a public company, though. But that seems to have been lost a little bit. It's it's hard work being a public company. Can they really wait on the sidelines, though, and look at a Kava, you know, something that is not related to their business? Is that a good indicator for them? I mean, does someone have to go? Who do you think that could be? Who's going to be pushed to maybe just test the waters for everyone else? Yeah, so Kava is one indicator. Yeah, you have some other non-tech companies in the pipeline. Uh, You've had a ton of secondary offerings. So follow-on stock offerings in May uh, that showed that there was a lot of demand in the public markets for tech stocks. They just weren't necessarily initial public offerings. Um, Nobody wants to jump first. Nobody wants to be the sort of the the testing ground to see if investors are are truly excited. Um, You know, if you think about the businesses that are best positioned to go public, um, the ones I hear about are Canva, are Databricks. Mm -hmm. but you talk to people close to those companies, and they're not close. They've got, again, plenty of money. Right. They don't want to take that valuation haircut. They don't want to take the risk. And it just they don't see the advantage of being public now versus just waiting a little bit. And the market is so different. What investors are looking for in 2021, it was all about growth. In 2023, still largely about profitability, right? That's what investors want to see. So different maybe calculation there. You know who is bold, who could maybe go first? I don't know. I'll ask you about this. Is Masasan, right? He says that he's going to be focusing on getting armed public. They want more liquidity to invest in this AI race. Do you think that if ARM goes, that's a good gauge for some of the other ones waiting in the wings? If ARM goes and it does well, uh, companies will say that's a good gauge. If ARM goes and it doesn't go well, uh, they'll either say totally different kind of business, uh, much bigger, not venture-backed, it's in the private equity space, um, so maybe not so relevant. Either way, though, uh, you know, arm will be indicative of some level of investor demand and their willingness to still put money into risk. Right. All these little signs. Um, On the other side, employees of these companies, I think I called them earlier this week, dinosaur unicorns. They're not just normal unicorns because they've been private for so long now, longer than typical. Um, 
What are you hearing from them, from that base that has been sort of waiting for these companies? All they have is paper wealth. They need these companies to go public before they can actually have that money in hand. Yeah, so you've got two real sources of pressure. The first are, are the VCs, who are often the majority shareholders in these companies. VCs have a business model, and that business model is not to keep companies private. That business model is to keep companies public and to get liquidity. On the employee side, many of them have been waiting for years uh, for the opportunity to buy a house. Uh, they need to put their kids through college. Mm -hmm. um, they need to pay off debt. And they don't make a lot of money on the salary side. All of their wealth is built into this equity. This is the reason they didn't go work at Google or Facebook, right? right? Uh, and so there's a ton of pressure coming in that from that direction. It's such a fascinating dynamic at the moment, right? Yeah. Everyone's waiting, but they're feeling the pressure, at least some of the older unicorns, to do so. Uh, Ari Levy, great piece. Thanks for being with us Thanks. today. Uh, before we go, let's get another quick look at the tech sector hitting a new 52-week high today. The Nasdaq, we've said it once, we'll say it again, rounding out its best first-half performance since 1983. The Nasdaq 100 seeing its best first half of all time. Tech just roared back in the first half of the year. The top three performers, NVIDIA, Meta, Tesla, all up more than 110 percent in the first six months. Um, it's been quite the quarter, quite the year so far, quite the half. And that does it for this Tech Check special. Thank you again for watching. Last Call starts now with Contessa. It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions.